Misfits, Freak Shows, and Temples of the Holy Ghost. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. If you were moved a few episodes back by the discussion we brought you from Dr. Deal Hudson's class on Flannery O'Connor on the grotesque communion of saints, if you were moved by that, you are not alone. So we're going to bring you one more lecture and discussion from that class, which really was a great one in the fellowship. Hopefully you can hear the the discussion and the fellows that were there. They were They were just high caliber. And, you know, one thing only was missing from from that class, and it was you. Uh, you probably hear these podcasts and think, you know, I would enjoy being in these discussions. And it's true. Uh, the, they would be better with you in, in them. So join the Magnus Fellowship today, magnusinstitute.org. It's free. It always will be. And consider this a personal invitation. You're welcome to join us. Uh, so here's more from that great class on Flannery O'Connor. Enjoy it. So now we move on to a temple of the Holy Ghost. By the way, all these stories were written in 1953 in the same year. This was uh, during the first few years after she came back to Milledgeville from uh, living with the uh, Fitzgeralds in Ridgefield, Connecticut. Uh, so this is the first fruits of her uh, living with her mother, Regina, is it Regina? Is, is there Regina or Regina? Does anybody know for sure? It's Regina. That's what I thought. So every day they went to 6 a.m. mass. They came home. She worked. She wrote for four hours. Uh, they went to eat every day at, uh, a place in, um, the Sanford House Tea Room in Milledgeville, where she liked the fried shrimp. And in the afternoon, she would read uh, and uh, visit with friends. And so this is what she was doing. So she's writing four hours a day, even on Sunday. Well, I'm, I want to start this discussion here. And that is, I think the story we just read was a story about what happens to the general. Temple of the Holy Ghost is about what happens to the 12-year-old girl from whose perspective this story is told, what happens to her. The coming and going of the second cousins from the convent school, the the, uh, presence of Miss Kirby, the lodger, um, the driver, Alonzo Myers, Wendell and Corey, who come to take the girls to the, to the fair, to the circus. All that is incidental, and the mother, all that is incidental to how this 12-year-old girl is taking in, while being a very active participant in, obviously, mostly in a stupid way, trying to get attention, trying to... Uh, make fun of her second cousins or make fun of the people around her, uh, be, you know, she'd be a naughty, uh, and rude, but something profound happens to her during this story because we know at the end she's, uh, 
she goes back to the to the convent with the uh, second cousins, and uh, she it's it. I'll just read this. The child knelt down between her mother and the nun, and they were well into tantum ergo before her ugly thoughts stopped, and she began to realize that she was in the presence of God. Help me not to be so mean, she began mechanically. Help me not to give so much sass. Help me not to talk like I do. Her mind began to get quiet and then and then empty, but when the priest raised the monstrance with the host shining ivory colored in the center of it, she was thinking of the tent at the fair that had the freak in it. The freak was saying, I don't dispute it. This is the way he wanted me to be. Now, it seems to me we're right at Flannery at her best right here, at her best, because it's she's presenting a, um, a mystery so deep that everyone on this in this class could have a different opinion of it. And probably, you know, all of them would be valid to some extent. Um, but my question is, uh, were you as surprised as I was that this 12 year old girl went from being a total sass and, you know, pain in the butt to having this experience at the convent Stan? Well, I'll just say that, that, you know, that, that juxtaposition of those, those extremes and between, this this is where we this is where we see truth at its hardest and its ugliest, and then we understand that we're somewhere between the sublime. And then when we're put in a sublime situation, we don't feel like we belong there until we reference it to those ugliest things and and the pity and the the real movement of the heart toward those things that that we that we empathize with. And we understand that the connection between the sublime and the ugly is really where we are. And, and we understand our imperfections there in the middle, but we also stand, understand that that connection is what makes us most human. Between our failures and the, the, the fault of creation, you know, whatever, that that's what he wanted us to be. I'm a freak. But at the same time, we, we connect that through our own imperfections. And, and, and I think that goes back to our discussion from that last, that last uh, story about the connection between uh, sentimentality and reality. And if we disconnect those two things, then we have a real philosophical problem. Well, basically, she's putting uh, she's imagining a freak inhabiting the, 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 the host. Now, when Dante at the uh, vision of the Holy Trinity sees these three circles, uh, flaming, luminous circles, looping, uh, these, these circles of love passing between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, she's seeing the, the host is supposed to represent Christ crucified, right? And now she's putting the hermaphrodite in the middle of it. I mean, I can see why there's... Little ladies in Milledgeville got a little, you know, sure, sure. But now this goes back to her her quote about the the communion in the Marianne introduction, which she said was based on the imperfection 
of humanity. And, and that struck me because, because we, I, I think, you know, from, from the outset, we would say that, no, the, the host is based on the perfection of divinity. Her, her response in the introduction was that the hope that the, that the, that the communion is based on imperfection, which speaks to this particular thing. Well, it's, and, the, it's the embracing of all imperfection. It's incarnation. Right. Right. It's, I mean, it's incarnation that, that the, that the, meaning of the communion is in the incarnation not just of of divinity itself but in the but in the communion of all those who take it um i'm going to put something up on the screen and i want caroline to read the top paragraph this is what the hermaphrodite says in her appearance would you read that caroline god made me this way and if you laugh, he may strike you the same way. This is the way he wanted me to be, and I ain't disputing his way. I'm showing you because I got to make the best of it. I expect you to act like ladies and gentlemen. I never done it to myself, nor had a thing to do with it, but I'm making the best of it. I don't dispute it. I got to make the best of it reminds me of the quote from uh, the introduction to Marianne where we're our, the, the goodness in us is all a matter of being constructed. We're making the best of uh, what we have. Robert, your face is filled with uh, some kind of rem remark or comment. Uh, I was reading, reading the, the, the chats and I, I like... Uh... I was pondering Amy's Christ was a freak. How else could we identify with him? He died for freaks. Oh. So. And uh, Ron says, Gracie, I think we were seeing the Catholic imagination in action. The young girl seems to be emblematic of the Catholic. When I read this story, I wondered if Flannery had been sexually molested. Within my mind. You know, you know, you have the, uh, I mean, the, uh, and I'm not saying it's you, I'm just telling you where my mind went. And uh, I did, I eventually dismissed that. But I, uh, I thought this is not just about uh, accepting our imperfection. This is about, there's something here about sexuality itself. And, uh, uh, because, I mean, we, we know from other stories, especially good country people, that uh, Flannery depicts the, uh, the destructive use of the weaponizing, as it was, of sexuality. And uh, here she's exposing the genitals of the male and the female in the same person. And... Uh, that's shocking. It's shocking. Uh, it's even more shocking that she put those genitals on a monstrous, monstrous. Well, uh, she, didn't, she didn't do that. I, I, I have to disagree with you there. Why? One of the things that, that struck me. Why well, did I thought I just read it? Well, no, that she made an identification between okay. the hermaphrodite 
and the the host and the monstrance. But that's not the same thing because she was not. Well, wait a minute. Let me just finish this. Okay, this go, 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 go. Okay. She is referred to throughout the story as the child. Right. She's never referred to any other way. These other two girls are older than she is. They are post-pubescent, and she is pre-pubescent. She is innocent in a way. She's a brat, but she's innocent. She doesn't know about these things. She claims to know. She says, I saw a rabbit give birth once, and, of course, she hadn't. And she and they say, oh, well, tell us about this rabbit. She says, oh, she spit the babies out the mouth. You know, so she obviously has no clue about sexual reproduction. But she is. she does have a religious imagination, a Catholic imagination, a, a sacramental imagination. And she is, what captivates her is this thought that this freak, and she can't even imagine what it was really like. You know, the, the, the older girls are delicate enough that they're not going to try to, you know, give her any kind of a uh, explicit description of what they saw. But she is captivated by the thought that this person could be a freak and could have this calm acceptance of their freakiness. You know, God made me this way. I didn't do this to myself. You know, praise God. You know, totally accepting of just the reality. And so for her, that is the, I think that is the thing is she is captivated by this idea of a human being as the, the temple of the Holy Ghost. And that even a deformed human being can be uh, this image of God, can be this, this dwelling place for God. And so I think that's the, the, the identification she makes between the host and the monstrance. What a great mystery. See, this is the thing is she understands the hermaphrodite's condition as a great mystery. It's a divine mystery. How can, how can God make someone that way and still want to inhabit them, you know, to st still want the Holy Ghost to live in them? And I think that's what happens when the when at the elevation at the benediction is uh, she she makes some kind of an intuitive um, uh, identification between these two things, and it's very different from the preachers in the town who are dirty minded and go out and they just see you know uh, some freak showing off their um, the uh, preachers got the show parts. the preacher got the show cut uh, shut down right right. Right. Let's let's Lisa. Let's look at this page in the story right after uh, she's told about the hermaphrodite. And uh, uh, Jill, would you start reading uh, with? Um, she lay in bed. Uh, right in the middle. Oh yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. She lay in bed, trying to picture the tent with the freak walking from side to side but she was too sleepy to figure it out. She was better able to see the faces of the country people watching, the men more solemn than they were in church, and the women stern and polite, with painted looking eyes, standing as if they were waiting for the first note of the piano to begin the hymn. She could hear the freak saying, God made me this away, and I don't dispute it. And the people saying, Amen, Amen. God done this to me and I praised him. Amen, amen. He could strike you this away. Amen, amen. But he has not. Amen. Raise yourself up, a temple of the Holy Ghost. You, you are God's temple, don't you know? Don't you know? 
God's spirit has a dwelling in you, don't you know? Amen, amen. Keep going. If anybody desecrates the temple of God, God will bring him to ruin, and if you laugh, he may strike you this away. A temple of God is a holy thing. Amen, amen. I am a temple of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The people began to slap their hands without making a loud noise, and with a regular beat between the amens, more and more softly, as if they knew there was a child near, half asleep. Okay, so to me, this, I mean, it's like the child, like, at least I'm going off what you said about her having a sacramental imagination. I think it shows really strongly through this passage Uh because she imagines she's imagining the whole uh, moment and its impact on the people and and the the people surrounding the hermaphrodite become a kind of a a church meeting only only flannery o'connor could see a freak show as a a sacred moment right right yeah and there's you know and there's a little sort of uh, evangelical who, you know, amen, amen. Uh, and, but the refrain is, I'm in temple of the Holy Ghost. So she is fully accepting, right? Yeah. The hermaphrodite, the freak, is also a temple of the Holy Ghost, fully affirming what the uh, hermaphrodite has said about herself and how she has said to the people, you need to treat me right. Uh, and I'm I'm a human being like you are, and uh, it seems to me that's as transformative a moment. It's almost a perpetuat per, preparatio evangelista. Mm-hmm. They say it a lot of preparation for evangelization for the next day when she goes out uh, to the monastery and. Uh, uh the you're right i mean i'm perhaps making too close a i was thinking of the image that she has in her head when she associates the hermaphrodite with the eucharist and uh uh was it who was it uh who was it that asked me if right to be oh, oh it was bill you asked me if flannery ever made fun of catholics well, you can see here she's making fun of Catholics when they, you know, they had a tendency to kiss even homely children. Uh, but the nun shook her hand vigorously and even cracked her nestles a little bit. And uh, then the crucifix crunching into her. Then she has this moment when the priest raised the monstrance with a hose shining ivory colored in the center of it. She was thinking of the tent affair that had the freak in it, the freak was saying, I don't dispute it. This is the way I wanted it to be. And then when she gets home, what has she found out? The Baptist preachers have shut down the circus because of hermaphrodite. That's, it, it just, you know, it's mentioned, it's not made anything, made, made anything about it. There's no comment on it. But this sacramental vision that that O'Connor is presenting through the grotesque is 
something that she thinks is rejected by Protestantism. They think she's rejected. It's rejected. You know, she thinks of Protestantism as uh, a, a, real, a basic, call, at one place calls it a made-up religion, but it's a rig- religion that is not grounded in s- sacramental life and the promises made to us uh, by, by God and by Jesus Christ. And the, uh, you know, the physical as well as spiritual participation in Christ. Uh, Alex, uh, if you were, would you be able to teach this to 10th and 11th graders, this story? Uh, maybe, especially if they, like the, like the child think that though they may be younger, they're a million times smarter than everybody else. And, right. <laughs> and, and maybe uh, there, there's a way that just like the, uh, the words of the hermaphrodite are like a wedge into her, um, towards humility. Um, the, the nuns at the monastery are, are a, a wedge to you know, they I know I'm not sure she's making fun of them. It's just that they love every child, and 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 when the and when the nun mischievously grabs her after having been held off uh, before, that's just uh, they, you know they they get you in the door, and then what do they do with you? They get you to think about uh, not being such a sass pot and not being such a smart ass. <laughs> you know, so I I I, I, I it's possible. Uh, it, yeah, given given the maturity of uh, given what kids are exposed to today, I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the key. Yeah. And then, of course, this last paragraph becomes this uh, visionary moment in the story, and you need to sort of get used to this because in her more more mature uh, work, not that this isn't, but you know what I'm saying, she starts working these almost mystical moments into her stories we'll talk sometime later about the influence of the uh theologian baron von hugel on her who wrote a multi-volume book on the mysticism of saint catherine of siena which uh was very influential on flannery as well as his letters to his niece so you have i'll read it Her mother let the conversation drop, and the child's round face was lost in thought. She turned it toward the window and looked over a stretch of pasture land that rose and fell, the gathering greenness until it touched the dark woods. Notice dark woods are going to come up, and good man is hard to find several times. The sun was a huge red ball like an elevated host drenched in blood, and when it sank out of sight, It left a line in the sky like a red clay road hanging over the trees. It's red clay road in in the sky heading, you know, Johannes Climacus, you know, the ladder to heaven. I think this is the first uh, story we've read that demonstrates uh, very clearly the power that is emerging from Flannery's short stories. Uh, obviously, we're going to see it in that one we turn to now. Good man is hard to find. But, uh, I mean, 
you remember, I don't know if you've ever read accounts of it, but when this particular book of short stories came out in 1955 and they started having book parties around Milledgeville, she was so afraid because she knew that her, all her relatives and friends would hate these stories, which they did, which they did. And uh, she was very severely reprimanded. Uh, I think one of her aunts, one of her mother's sisters handed a book back to her and said, I don't want this piece of trash. Mm. So, um, and I want to just add to this before we go to a good man is hard to find. She wrote, she says this about the whole book of stories. She says, the stories are hard, but they're hard because there's nothing harder or less sentimental than Christian realism. I believe that there are many rough beasts now slouching toward Bethlehem to be born, and that I have reported the progress of a few of them. And when I see these stories described as horror stories, I'm always amused because the reviewer always has hold of the wrong horror. Now, who who's the first to say where rough beasts now slouching toward Bethlehem to be born comes from uh Audrey? yates 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 and what's the name of the poem the second coming which i will now read to you it was written in 1919 right after the end of the first world war and uh, the irish the Irish lost the greatest percentage of soldiers that they sent to the first world war than any other because the English used the Irish as cannon fodder. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Sounds familiar? Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out in a vast image out of the spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Now, who in the next story essentially says but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. Who says that in a good man is hard to find? Misfit, no? Misfit, yeah. Who said that? Ron. And wh- how did he say it? When he says that uh, Christ shouldn't have raised the dead, that he basically screwed everything up by doing that. He turned the world upside down. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, yeah, that's not obviously. the best quote. Okay. You can do better now. Sure. What exactly did he say? Come on, guys. 
said he's thrown it all out of balance. Yes. Out of balance. So let me start off with my some of my reactions to this story, which I probably read 20 times. I don't know. But every time I go back to it, it's just as good. It's more, it's better. Uh, first of all, the, the story is so real. I mean, it's just a story of a family traveling in a car in the heat, you know, before everybody did planes and, uh, and when the families uh, traveled as extended families, you know, with grandparents and all of the, all that goes on in the car. I mean, I remember in the fifties, my, me and my sister and, and parents, we took a, uh, a trip in a Chevrolet Impala station wagon all the way from Virginia to Yosemite and Yellowstone park. And it was in the heat of the summer with no air conditioning. Luckily, we didn't miss, we didn't, you know, have a wreck and so forth. But uh, this was down the real route 5066. So this, I mean, I can relate directly to this setup of this story. Uh, I, I can even sort of relate to the hidden cat because it was on that trip that our, our family dog, Laddie, got his head stuck under the driver's seat. My dad almost shot him because we couldn't get the head out. Uh, Half-naked boy on the side of the road. Relate to that. The restaurant, the tower. It's, you know, this grimy, creepy place with characters and a monkey and the sharing of uh, backwoods platitudes. Uh, the, the grandmother dressing up when everybody else is dressed to travel. I mean, my great aunt Lucille never went anywhere when she didn't dress like she was looking for, you know, going to the opera. My question, and I'm going to start with Claire, is why is the grandmother so often referred to as sort of the bad guy in the story? Why do we look down upon her character? Claire? Well, she was kind of a hypocrite and morally superior. Right. Is that it? Well, I mean, you just said that's it in short. I mean, you know, she and she was, you know, cunning and conniving and, you know, tried to do things through the children, get her own way. And so what's how is she different from anybody else's grandmother? I mean, you didn't ask me that. You asked me. Yeah, but I mean. That's I'm perfect. asking you to sort of contextualize uh, her as the typical grandmother or the aunt. Well, I, I don't know that she's the typical one. Um, is she, I mean, we've all have relatives who are narcissistic like that, right? Yeah. Yes. So oh, what, what, is, what is your thought? Well, first... She's not altogether different from the, any of the other character, if you think about it. All, all of them are selfish. The children are bratty. Uh, most of them have this kind of self-centeredness about them. So I don't think there's any 
you can sort of hypocrisy is one of their least sins if you think about it. What I can mainly think of is first the first sentence that opens up, which is all about the grandmother. Right. It says the grandmother didn't want to go to Florida. And that sort of sets up not just the story narrative wise, but also I think the sort of arc of the grandmother throughout the entire um, driving the plot line. Yes. And in that the grandmother is the villain or could be characterized as a villain. Personally, I, I think she has a redemptive quality to her that makes her not necessarily the villain of the story. Are you talking um, about the tenderness she told she shows she toward the been a good woman if there'd have been somebody there to hold the gun to her head or that and um I do kind of let her get away with I don't know it's like when she says you're the misfit to the misfit which causes all of the the prob the causes the last sort of like the last straw. Wait a minute. She makes them go off on this dirt road. Hadn't been driven on for for <laughs> months, which you know turns out not to be the road at all. Then when she sees the car up on the hill, she gets up and waves to the misfit's car, and then that's when the misfit faces her, says, "You're the misfit." That's after saying earlier <laughs> on that she would never, ever want to go to Florida. Where was it? She would never want to go there because the misfit might be there. Yeah, I mean, she eventually said we shouldn't be going in that direction because we could run into the misfit. But then she gives in because the children sort of shame her into it, right? Saying after she made up a lie, she'll be the first one to go. And she was was the first one. She comes downstairs and she's dressed like she's going to church. She's actually going to a funeral, right? Ha ha ha. So Owen. There is, we don't learn anything about the mother, do we? Uh, we don't. And a teacher of mine, I studied this uh, senior year in college. A teacher of mine told me that the fact that we don't know anything about the mother or the infant is Flannery O'Connor's way of shielding us and softening the blow, so to speak, of what happens to them. Like, we don't know their name. and generally they're not very like focused on as opposed to how the grandmother or even her son is more focused on. Owen, did you notice that when the misfit says to his two, two cronies, take the mother and the baby over where you into the woods, where you took a husband and the son, she says, thank you to the misfit. Let's just dwell on that for a second. Why did she say thank you? She knew her. I mean, she wasn't dumb. She knew she's going to be shot, right? Jill, you go ahead. Well, I mean, right before that, um, it says the children's mother had begun to make heaving noises as if she couldn't get her breath. So you're, you, you knew, I mean, she's a mother. Her husband was just shot. Her she's son dislocated was shot. Shoulder. So yeah. she's... A broken children. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a mess. 
She's ready to be put out of her misery. Is that it? Yeah. And then, then she doesn't have to deal with her mother-in-law anymore too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, she's, she's, she's already checked out. That's, that's that. But anybody but have any, anybody here have a different take on that? I think she's already accepted her fate too. I think part of it is just the way he's been talking to her as if this were just a kind of a polite, uh, uh, transaction that's going on. He says, lady, would you and that little girl like to step off yonder with Bobby Lee and Hiram and join your husband? You know, just as if you're going to go be with your husband. And she just, you know, says, yes, thank you. I think it was an automatic response. She did want to be with her husband. Um, she didn't want to be with him anymore. That's for sure. But I think that was just a, a conventional response that just sort of came reflexively. See, what I see, and I see a very believable story. You know, it doesn't, we don't have to make any leaps of imagination. No, we don't have to have negative capability. Uh, we don't have to, as Coleridge put it, suspend our disbelief. We've all been on road trips with family. Uh, we've all gotten lost, right? Uh, we've. And in the old days, we all knew what was to break down because in the old days, in my generation, we actually broke down all the time. You know, hoses blew, belts broke. And, you know, you, you hope that either your dad knew how to fix it or some good Samaritan would come by or you get towed to a gas station you're spending the night in a motel where mosquitoes were, you know, getting electrocuted on grills outside the window of your room. And so this all believable. It's all even believable that the cat jump up and would surprise Bailey. And he, you know, he had, was on a road that was 10 feet above a ditch on each side. Right. And he would turn the wheel and the car would flip. It's all believable. What, what, be, what becomes hard to, imagine is the misfit himself he's not imaginable or he's not he comes and the story changes from one of one that we all can identify with to one that it's a horror story so we need to talk about that and uh we also need to talk about what's up with the grandmother she immediately says, he looks like somebody I've known. What is, what is going, that is, I mean, I think she's sincere, right? I mean, this is before she even knows what is going to happen to them. She doesn't know he's the misfit, doesn't know they're going to come out of the car with guns and all that. Am I right? What is what is being set up here in terms of the grandmother's? Uh, I mean, we we we've seen the narcissism which we all have seen in people and in relatives, but all of a sudden we see this. We see, we see the grandmother recognizing somebody out of the blue, uh, which is totally unexpected. Stan, I think it's more general than specific. I think. You know, there's a recognition here of, and and I think you know what I was 
thinking as you were speaking was that this is consistent in Flannery, that there is a recognition of that which is other by that which is by that which is every day, by that which is us, that that all of us look at the thing and recognize the otherness and equate ourselves to it. Um, and it's not necessarily a specific recognition. I didn't, I really didn't understand what you just said, Stan. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that, <laughs> Can we do that again? <laughs> but, but it goes, but I think it goes back to the, it goes back to the hermaphrodite story as well, that, that there is a, a relation to the other that Flannery writes into all her stories, that, mm-hmm. that there is a recognition of that, which is, you know, I, I hate to use the term grotesque, but 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 that's the term that that we recognize the grotesque in ourselves, and therefore um, we are. There's a certain familiarity with it, even even though it's not a specific familiarity. Um, or she'd seen his paper in the news, his picture in the newspaper. Yes, I think it's that simple. I think it might be. But it says here. His face was as familiar to her as if she'd known him all her life, but could not recall who he was. So it seems to be more than herself. Don't don't you think that don't you think that we see ourselves in the grotesque? Don't you think that we see ourselves in the serial killer that we see ourselves in the hermaphrodite? We should. We don't. Flannery did. and, And she's suggesting that we all should, I think. But at this point, he has just gotten out of the car. Uh, with two other men. Oh, they were holding guns, but I don't. It you don't know whether or not she's noticed that yet. He had a long creased face and didn't have any on any shirt or undershirt. He had on a blue. He had on blue jeans that were too tight for him. Uh, a black hat and a gun. Claire, did you say something? I did. Um, I think that that we, we recognize something in others, but we're usually too prideful to see it's our own evilness. Now this, this progresses to her saying, why you, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. I mean, this progresses from recognizing, seeing, thinking he's someone that she's known for a long time to being her child. And in between, you get your, you know, all this, you're a good man. Uh, you must have gone from good people. You wouldn't shoot an old lady. Notice she doesn't say anything about shooting everybody else. She goes from this first recognition all the way up to saying, you could have been my, you, you're one of my children. Robert, where are you with this? I, I, uh, I see it as, as she... You know, we all uh, see our, the potential for uh, the um, the other as our brother, you know. Stop the other. I mean, stop the other. I mean, we're not doing Heidegger. We're, you know, we're not doing uh, <laughs> Derrida or, you know, whatever. I mean, the other. But what Flannery is saying is that the other is us. She's she's saying that we're all other in a sense. It's not. I mean, I understand the rhetoric of the other. But what Flannery is saying is that we all are, in a sense, that. That evil. That's what he is. The misfit is evil. <laughs> and that's and, what and the we other recognize thing that is. in ourselves. Yes. 
But we may not recognize, she didn't recognize it as evil. She I, does recognize him right. as evil. She recognizes him as the mass murderer, the mystic. No, 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 no. I mean, when she initially sees him, she initially sees him, she doesn't know he's evil. When she says she she feels like she's known him all of her life. You know, that that rings true to me. Does it ring true to anybody else? Yeah. I mean, she what, she, what does she say? At first she said... Satan. She says, you're the misfit. I recognized you at once. No, that was not first. When he came over the hill, she said, she said, I feel, I feel like I've known him all of my life. So why would... Where is that? It's right after we had an accident. The grandmother had the peculiar feeling that the bespeckled man was someone she knew. His face was as familiar to her as if she had known him all of her life, but she could not recall who he was. So I'm saying that she recognized something, but didn't identify it as evil. Yeah, there's there's something very idyllic about this. There's something very Garden of Eden, uh, knowing knowing the knowing Satan for what he is, yes. being familiar with Satan for what he is. This evil presence that Eve relates to, even old Eve, even even old you know, uh, mother-in-law Eve, that, that there is, is something here that she recognizes because she has known it her own life and she's known it in herself. I just, you know, she goes from saying, I recognize you. And then she keeps telling him he's good. Mm-hmm. Is she trying to deny her intuition? I mean, her intuition, I think is based upon a recognition of evil recognition of that. But then she goes from there to you're good, you're good, your family's good. Uh, you could be one of my children. Meredith, what's going on? Well, um, I'm just wondering if she is all of a sudden faced with the reality of what is to come. And so what else is she going to do at that moment? This is just her way of saving herself. You have two children. Well, I don't perhaps per, I mean it could be lots of things it could be that she thinks that her words are somewhere going to how be redemptive to him like all of a sudden he'll you know and which is kind of a prideful place that she's put herself right she thinks if I tell him he's good enough and say all these good things then perhaps he will receive grace and mercy right and change his ways and she will be the savior right of herself and him and all of that um or it could okay. be she She's desperate. Anne, I know you have a take on this. Um, first of all, I I thought when I read it that when she recognized him, it's because she had seen his picture, and it was slowly dawning on him her who he was. And when she realized he was the misfit, she was almost excited. Oh, I identified him. She didn't think about what was what she was going to cause to happen by showing recognition. No, no, he had been in the paper. Therefore she's participating in his pub, you know, his celebrity hood or his notoriety. Right. And that's why she's excited because she's a Southern lady. Like her version of going to the premiere of Gone with the Wind, you know? Yeah. And I think, and I agree with who was it? Meredith was saying that, um, 
Perhaps she thought she could redeem him. Maybe she could talk him into seeing that he's really good. And maybe he could change his mind and not shoot her. And Listen, I think she says, uh, you, okay, so uh, she says, you wouldn't shoot a lady, would you? And then uh, he says, I would hate to have to. Listen, the grandmother almost screamed. I know you're a good man. You don't look a bit like you have common blood. I know you must come from nice people. Ron, what do you what do you have on your mind there, Ron? Yeah, I, I had a different take on this on this whole thing. I do didn't. Um, I, I, he's salvific for her. Um, he's 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 Christ hiding in in the uh, in in the monster. He's he, he, he saves her, right? It's through this, through his presence that she's redeemed when, when he, when he shoots her, she actually becomes better from meeting him. He's like an angel. But only at the last minute. That, that, what, what does that matter? Right. That's the, what, that's what counts, right? The last minute is what, what really counts. Well, but you the point are is in, in she's not seeing the angel in him. See, I disagree with that. When when there's a scene, and I maybe misread it, but when I read it again, I still think it's there. It's 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 hinted at. She's stand she's standing up, and he's uh, crouched down, and she looks at his shoulders. And you know, when you think of the misfit before you encounter him, you think of someone that's going to be you know overbearing, etc. This is a this is a, a a thin man. And when she looks down at his shoulders, it's almost as if she's seeing, in, and again, this, I may be reading into it. It's almost as if she's seeing wings, his head moving back and forth can between his shoulders. Text? Can we find that part in the text? Yeah, but you're going to realize I'm reading a lot into it, I'm no, sure. Wrong. No, is this where he puts on his shirt or is it after that? Uh, it's before he puts the shirt on because she sees him, he's, he's bare chested. But she's, again, he crouches down. And she's standing. Yeah, this is right before the the gunshots uh, that indicate the death okay. of Bailey. He put on his black hat and looked up suddenly, and then away deep into the woods, as if he were embarrassed again. I'm sorry, I don't have on a shirt before you, ladies. He said, hunching his shoulders slightly. We buried. Our, oh, maybe that's not it, because I know she's looking down at him. There's another, I thought there was another reference. Yes, the grandmother noticed how thin his shoulder blades were just behind his hat because she was standing up looking down on him. Do you ever pray? She asked. I don't know. For some reason, I got a, a, an image of, of, a, of an angel at that, at that moment. And I, of course, I mean, I know the ending. I know that he puts her out of her misery at the moment when she reaches out to him in, well, in, in a true Ron, someone who has thin shoulder blades is malnourished, right? Has been, uh, has somehow been physically distended. Uh, you see that as, keep going with this. Well, there's, there was something about it that I took to be holy. Yeah, all he saw, all she saw was the black hat wiggle between his shoulder blades. Yeah, and maybe it was because he was in a crouching position and was like kneeling. I don't know. I I, I guess I did read too much into it. No, but I, no, I, no, 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 no. Every every reading here is acceptable. Um, like I said earlier, I mean this 
these stories send us in so many different directions. We need to explore those directions together. Lisa, you're percolating. Oh, well, just to, to look at that that scene that um, Ron was just referring to, he's he's kind of crouched down in the dirt and he's kind of scratching in the dirt. He's not looking up at her. It made me think of a, a little boy. Um, you know, in, in the South in the summertime, little boys always run around about half naked. And that, I just had this sense of him. It, it made me think of my little, my brother when he was a little boy. He had these little uh, shoulder blades like chicken wings, you know. Um, and so maybe that was the moment that she start, first started to feel this uh, 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 tenderness toward him, not openly. I mean, at that point, she's just worried for her own life. And then, so when, you know. Lisa, when she says, if you would pray, the old lady said Jesus would help you. You see that as totally sincere and not. No, no, not at that point. At that point, she that's a Hail Mary. That's just she is trying desperately to connect with him somehow to engage his conscience somehow. Where does make him, where does the turn come? I think is at the very last moment. I think because uh, because look at what happens when he's talking about how uh, Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead. He shouldn't have done it. He's thrown everything off balance. And, you know, if you had to go with him. If you don't go with him, uh, there's no pleasure in life but meanness, okay? And she is so she is so past hope at that point that she says, well, maybe he didn't raise the dead. She's willing to suggest that just right. to save herself. I'm going to agree with you. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, okay? Um, and he says, well, I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't say. Well, he's but, he's trying to then, find she's trying to find common cause with him, so to speak. She's trying she's trying to get get him to see that they're on the same side. First, she says, "Oh, you're good people," you know, because she's good people. And then she he, he's making it pretty clear he's not good people. He says, "I did bad things," you know. Um, uh, but here at the last minute, when he says, "Um." It ain't right that I wasn't there because if I'd have been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, if I'd have been there, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. So he basically he's blaming Jesus for not letting having him there at the moment, you know. Well read. Just, just well then. Read. Just then. Owen, it's where are you? Something happens in her. Owen, where are you on this? Well, hmm. I'm sorry. I was just thinking about the kind of the uh the snake how some people are saying the edenic serpent and i was kind of thinking is the the serpent bite that he gets when she hits him um well when she touches him is that a flipping of the eden moment instead of the sir the fall of man this is a rising of man or an accepting of grace it's it I think that's a key moment. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, she I've always taken this why you're one of my babies, you're one of my own children as an honest as as a genuine sincere act of love comment of loving comment or law affirmation. That's when he snaps becomes face to face with that charity uh. And by the way, and I'm going to ask this of uh, Amy. Amy, why were his eyes red-rimmed after he shot her? Well, it's, it's like he was about to cry. 
when um without his glasses the missus eyes were red rimmed and pale and defenseless looking right she saw before that she saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry and she was like i think he was almost at that breaking point like it was like uh, you know on the edge and then i think after he shot her that's when it, and he took off his glasses right taking off those glasses is kind of i think symbolic of something like and he's defenseless looking um is it i don't know like does he is he kind of realizing because then his comments afterwards you know he he kind of takes back his words from before at the end uh you know it's no real pleasure in life killing people he kind of seems yeah. to me to have a little bit of a change of heart at that moment or you know because before he said if christ didn't raise you from the dead we we should go seek our pleasure in burning out people and killing them and so forth but he actually gets no pleasure from this so he's been touched by something that keeps him from taking pleasure now i didn't realize that we have now been on uh, together for 2 hours and 7 minutes and i feel like i've uh, t- i've kept y'all too long I'd like to go ahead. This has been an absolutely marvelous discussion in every way. And I want us to keep talking about this story as we read the others. I want to thank everybody for hanging in there as long as you did. And uh, it suggests uh, we had a terrific discussion. We let it, we just, <laughs> time just flew. And I, I'm on the middle of my second cigar and third pipe. So uh, I want to thank everybody for the Great class, and uh, we're going to come back to this story. There's more in this story that we need to talk about. Well, good night, everybody, and God bless. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.